John Roderick. We speak to you from our present, which we can only assume is your distant past, the turbulent time that was the early 21st century. Fearing the great cataclysm that will surely befall our civilization, we began this monumental reference of strange and obscure human knowledge. These recordings represent our attempt to compile and preserve wonders and esoterica that would otherwise be lost. So whether you're listening from an advanced civilization or have just reinvented the technology to decrypt our transmissions, this is our legacy to you. This is our time capsule. This is the Omnibus. have accessed entry 424.PR2822, certificate number 32641. The Erie War. In the spirit of our times, um, the Omnibus is supported on Patreon by, uh, by a lot of our uh, like-minded futurelings, people who understand that it's that in this economy, in this economy, you don't want a free podcast twice a week in this economy. Yeah. You don't want, you don't want to depend on advertising. And as one of the perks, uh, our listeners get to pick a show or pick or suggest some show topics. And, uh, this show topic began like so many omnibus suggestions as a top, as a set of topics that could not possibly be turned into an omnibus show, a, a well-meaning suggestion from a listener. Listener MCF. MCF. Yo, yo. MCF. Do you think MCF is a DJ name? Yeah, you need a, I mean, that's kind of a killer DJ name. MCF. MCF. I thought MCF was the bad guy in Tron. Oh, no, that's MCP. That's the MCP. Uh, But, you know, the the thing about, uh, the thing about the Omnibus is it's, there are so many interesting people in the world that you could do a biographical show uh, about. But, uh, but we always find, uh, in order to be entered into the omnibus, it has to be, uh, not just of historic interest, but of historic import. Would Uh, you not say, would you not say that that was maybe the, the line you look for? Does this have import or is it only interest? I would like to say that, uh, instead, no, I really just, uh, I find myself thinking, what would I like to talk about for 45 minutes? What would I like to talk about? And as because you I, know... I feel like I've probably done a show on fire hydrants or something, so I can't really say it's import. Well, fire hydrants are important. Think about all the lives that have been saved. What do you think is the least important thing that's ever been... Entered into the omnibus? <laughs> omnibus. <laughs> I, I mean, of, often they're representative of... Uh, didn't we do a show on those clicky balls that executives have on their desks? Yeah. And you can tie it into the broader culture for sure. Well, sure. Just think about, I mean, think about the story that tells about clicky balls, <laughs> about clicky balls and stockbrokers. And that's going to be uh, part of our show today. Um, but you know, what do I like talking about? Uh, airplanes, the cold war and railroads. Uh, which do we have today? And John? this is going to be, this is going to be a show about railroads. At the beginning of every Thursday show, we roll a three-sided <laughs> dice and it comes up either Soviets. Airplanes 
or railroads. But almost always when you look at an interesting biography and you look far enough into it, there's going to be a connection between the, between the person that, uh, that's been initially suggested and a broader story. Let me ask you, Ken, do you play the market? I thought you were going to say like an instrument. Do you play, do you the, play the market? I do not. Can you imagine me just day trading here in the middle of the show? I got to get up early because of the Japanese indexes. I mean, when we were doing this show a few years ago at, at my old house, the farm, you used to stop the show in the middle to play an online trivia game that actually earned money. That's true. You would say, ah, I got to do my game. Hold on. I'm, gonna, I'm, I'm about to win 20 bucks. Can we take a second? <laughs> and it felt like you were playing the market. Uh, I mean, I, I have I have money invested in this. What, what, what to your to your mind is involved in playing the market? Well, that's the any thing. money invested? Or? No, no, no. Oh, okay. If you have money in a mutual fund, right. I mean, that's the op. Somebody's playing the market. But what, if, what if I found the most boring index fund possible and put a lot of money in it? That's not playing. I don't think it's playing. I I had a a, a former bandmate of mine who made a. Uh, who made money in rock and roll and a lot of rock and roll money comes in the form of one big payday where you go, you know, I, I remember I was talking to, uh, Sir Mix a lot or Mix as we affectionately know him. Weird name drop. And, uh, Mix a lot was saying that this was when Macklemore had, his song was already blowing up. The thrift shop money. Uh, yeah, but, but he had yet to receive it. It was, there's one of these you know, conversations that happens in a historic moment, uh, this pregnant moment when Macklemore is on the charts, but his life hasn't changed yet. And Mick said, I was talking to him the other what day. What is the gap, by the way? Like Jeopardy won't pay you off for months. Yeah. And it's the same with, with music. You know, you, if you get a hit on the charts, that money's got to go through all these different, you know, it, it has to be collected by these or, different collection organizations. The label is selling and it's got to, the money's, the money takes a while. And Mick said he was talking to Macklemore and it was just some kind of backstage conversation. It wasn't like Macklemore had come to him and said, Hey man, can you help me? And Mick said, what are you going to do when the million dollar check arrives? And he said, from the look on Macklemore's face, it was clear that he had not considered it. And Mick said, you know, you're going to go to the mailbox and you're going to open it. You're living in a, you've got a roommate right now. You're going to open the mailbox and there's a million dollars in the form of a check. You know, this happened to you, right? Yeah. Didn't, didn't Alex Trebek walk over at one point on camera and hand you a million dollar check? I like big checks and I cannot lie. Word. Uh, not on camera, but yes. Because you, you complained about it on you, you, you he yeah. said, "How's it going with all the money?" And you were like, "Actually, I haven't been paid." You guys yet. aren't going to pay me for months, Alex. Give me a break. And then he came over in the yeah, in during the, the commercial. He pulls out a <laughs> pulls a check out of his breast pocket. That's so good. And and what was that experience like? You get a all of a sudden you're like, "Well, it's just over, it's just overwhelming." It you think you're ready for it and it's already real, and then you when you have the piece of paper, you realize you were not ready for it. I I was going to change my clothes three more times that day to play Jeopardy, and I have to figure out what to do with this check. It, it is almost like a score on a video game until it's paper. Did you put it into your garter belt? Is that what you did? <laughs> did you tuck it in your bra? I gave. I think I'm on the record <laughs> on Omnibus. I gave it to a friend who was in the studio audience that day and said, "Hey, would you hold on to one point three million dollars for me?" Like <laughs> and that friend now lives in Ecuador. Yeah, he went to a check cashing place across uh, Overland. And immediately turned that into <laughs> seven hundred thousand dollars. <laughs> I was going to go less after he paid yes. the fees. 
Yeah, I don't know. I think I think when that check did arrive, Macklemore went and bought a swimming pool, and then he realized he didn't have anywhere to put it. But it but it was interesting. And so this come on, Macklemore. So this friend of Mix mine, Lot tried to help you. <laughs> and you know, Mix, of course, he's to, he's saying this. He's telling this story just like you know. This is it was hilarious to me because I knew it was coming and it was going to hit this kid like a train. But it, but I watched it happen to a friend of mine who got a lump sum. It's funny. There's a one-hit wonder support group. It just occurred to me. Well, yeah. I mean, well, Mix had more than one hit. But yeah, right? I mean... I would say Macklemore's chart history is maybe a little <laughs> a little richer than Mr. Mix-a-Lot's. What was the second song? Uh, My Posse's on Broadway. There we go. Well, I mean, right? that's the one they play here. Yeah. But no, that was a hit. That was a minor hit. And put them on the glass? Come on, Ken. Mix had a bunch of hits. Enough to buy 50 Lamborghinis or whatever he has. Yeah, and Macklemore's got a, r- a rich chart history, of course. I, I you're, know, you're right. Posse on Broadway yeah. was also a Hot 100 hit. I, I know quite a few one-hit wonders, and they're, they're... Not My Hoopty, interestingly. I thought My Hoopty would have... Uh, didn't what, do anything on the pop chart. What about, what about Put Him on the Glass? Where's that? I mean, that's a little bit of a... That's a blue song. Maybe And maybe for that reason. We sing it all the time. And maybe for that reason, <laughs> did, did not chart. Um. But you're you're absolutely right. There should there is kind of an un, un, unofficial support group because this is this really is a problem. Uh, how do you, especially if you've been laboring in the music trenches for years, and and uh, your band all lives in in a in a big house that smells like stale beer? What do you do? Uh, even a one hit wonder can you can get a. Uh, a situation where everybody in the band gets $300,000, which is not enough to live on forever, but it's an awful lot to figure out what to do with in an afternoon. And, uh, at one of these former bandmates of mine decided, uh, he was very science oriented. He decided he was going to play the market. He was going to turn his, is that what scientists do? Yeah. He was, they well, day he, trade? he was going to use science and this was the early days of day trading. He's got the, a system. The, the internet was, had just gotten into, just gotten fast enough that you could trade stuff. There was a time people yeah. may not remember when just lay people were just fascinated with this because now they could treat stock trading, like not like a thing you check once a day on the news, but like a video game. Yeah. Yeah. And this was, this was happening right at that time. And he was a computer savvy person and he had several hundred thousand dollars that sort of arrived all at once. And he went and, and tried to learn the business of shorting penny stocks and in the course of six months lost the entire amount. Oh, wow. Now compared to some of his bandmates who went out and bought 1964 Lincoln Continentals, uh, which also they were not equipped to maintain. But at or, least they end up with a car. Uh, or give all their money to arts institutions. I mean, he didn't lose his money really any more profoundly than everybody else in his band, but he lost it a lot faster. And in and it right in front of us, you know, like he would come to band practice and say, well, I'm down, but you know, tomorrow I've, I've got it figured out. Like tomorrow I'm going to make it happen. Oh, boy. And then lost it all. Uh, That's very sad to me. Yeah, it was. It was in a, a way that somebody just giving it to arts institutions or, or buying cars would not be. I don't know. There's just a sense of futility to it. Yeah, you feel like blowing it. Go ahead and blow it. But uh, you know, he was while this was happening, he was living in a one bedroom apartment on Capitol Hill, and he continued to live on a, in a one bedroom apartment on Capitol Hill, even through the 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 big transfer of money. Although now I will say. The happy ending to the story is he did become a computer person who moved to Palo Alto 
and now I think lives in a helicopter. Could buy and sell all of us. He probably got the job based on all the stuff he learned about algorithms. Yeah. Losing $300,000 of royalty. That's right. Well, don't cry for him, Argentina. But you know, the stock market um, has gone through many permutations. I'm talking about specifically the New York Stock Exchange. Okay. Um, it is, uh, it, stocks have been traded for many, many centuries. You know, we talked about the beginning of the insurance trade in, in Venice, Italy in, during the, the, uh, Renaissance. Um, but you yeah, know, that was, that was the entry called what, uh, Greek, genuine insurance. Genuine insurance. It didn't actually have any genuine insurance in it. It was, there was a, there was a labeling issue. On yeah. There was a little bit. The of FDA labeling. was angry with it. But the New York Stock Exchange kind of uh, formed, it coalesced rather in the late 1700s. You know, we're a brand new country. And in New York, there was this informal group of people that were trading securities, you know, trading sort of ownership in, in, in businesses. You know, a lot of these businesses were just people just really scrambling and, and stock trading and futures securities. It was all a pretty informal group of people. In fact, uh, they, well, it wasn't, a t they, they met for many years in a coffee house, the Tontine coffee house, which they kind of built as a place for stockbrokers. This is down on wall street. And were they doing all the things ah, yelling blah, 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 no, 20 shares, 30 no, shares. There was like, it was like 25 people sitting around drinking coffee, sitting around tables and kind of, there was a blackboard. Where'd and they put the supercomputer? Uh, the supercomputer had not been invented yet. Mm. The supercomputer does not feature in this story. So that's Good. interesting. Because then, then Alexa won't talk to us. Yeah, thank goodness. Don't say that word. Um, so uh, the stock exchange, you know, New York is the center of, uh, of a lot of hustle bustle in the early 1800s. And, uh, and, and that's kind of in large part because of its status as a great port and its access to the Hudson River. You know, the up the Hudson was where a lot of the, uh, you know, the agricultural, uh, produce, you know, the produce was entering got, into the, farms in the, the stream. And so steamships and, and ferry boats are a big part of that early industrialization. You've got, uh, textile mills in, in the Northeast that are processing the cotton from the South. You know, this is this, this early 19th century kind of American boom. And um, the Erie Canal is, you know, first proposed and then built to to bring all of that yeah, Midwestern stuff of, yeah. to market. And a figure by the name of Cornelius Vanderbilt, who you may have heard of, uh, enters into the picture as a young guy. He he was um, he's from the Vanderbilt. The Vanderbilts have been in New York since he's the 1650s. A, he's already from old Dutch money. Yeah, this is they were the Vanderbilts and then eventually became Vanderbilt. What great 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 American story of how names are made. Yeah, the space bar was broken at Ellis Island or something. <laughs> Long before Ellis, Ellis Island. Although no, wait, Ellis Island, the island was there. Sure. Probably well, not most of it. Probably not yet named Ellis. Most of it's been uh, most of it was added on. When they, like new soil from when they dug the Lincoln Tunnel or something. Yeah. Oh, that's right. It used to be tiny. But uh, Vanderbilt himself, you know, started out as a um, as a, the son of a guy who was running a ferry boat back and forth across uh, across the Hudson River to New Jersey. Uh, just that was a good job back then, you know. Yeah, just like a like like a little dinghy, 
uh, with a couple of sails that, uh, this was, yeah, this was before the Brooklyn Bridge. But it wasn't one of the rope kind. Yeah, it was actually a boat. Yeah, a little boat. I, you couldn't, you couldn't have strung a rope across the Hudson, but maybe across the East River. Yeah. And so Vanderbilt as a young man, you know, his first, um, his first business was he bought his own little two-masted open schooner and began in the ferry boat trade. And this was a, you know, this was a. Even a, back then people wanted to get to Jersey for some they, reason. They wanted to get to Jersey. That was where, that was where it was all happening. And when the railroads first started entering into the picture in the 1830s, you know, the railroads couldn't really get to Manhattan. They could get to New Jersey. They could get, you know, they came in from various directions, but Pennsylvania Railroad. Load onto a ferry. To load to. onto a ferry, right. And so much traffic across the river. And Vanderbilt, you know, started to build, he got his second boat. He started to branch out. Now he had a, now he had a little, um, little ferry company. And then as the, the textile industry started, or the, you know, the New England textiles started to be a, a major industry, more and more transatlantic shipping got into, you know, became part of the American economy. We, we talked about the rise of the steamships in the SS America right. entry. Uh, and so Vanderbilt got into the steamship business in the, in the, the gold rush days in California, then there became a lot of steamship traffic. Um, at the time, those ships would go down to Panama and then unload the goods, carry them across the isthmus on mule trains and put them on boats and take them up the coast. And then eventually there was a railroad built across Panama. Um, so Vanderbilt was in shipping and that was a big part of his, well, that was, you know, kind of where he got his start. But it's funny that things are changing so fast that you can be in shipping and then that means you're a ferry boat guy and then you're a railroad guy and then you're a, you know, you've got sailing ships. Right. Um, I guess it would be the same as in tech today where. Some, yeah, you start as a coder. Microsoft starts making, well, I guess they're still making operating systems, but, you know, for the same, the same fortune is being made on, you know, vastly expanding technologies it's within a generation or two yeah it becomes xbox or uh, you know yeah. what what where does apple make all its money now the iphone but they weren't a phone company that's true until uh 10 years ago and weirdly we were talking yesterday about the apple card they have a credit card now and in true to apple style it's it's a beautiful little white card that's got a little heft to it and uh I did not think Amazon was going to be a grocery store when I was buying DVDs there. Apple apparently is a bank now. Yeah. Uh, so this is all happening in a in a very um, in in a time kind of like the Alaska that my uncle moved to in the early fifties, where it's like, oh, we need a newspaper. I'll start the newspaper. You know, this kind of of thing where a, a civilization where where a town becomes the center of a new. Uh, all these industries and services and, and um, there, the, the people that were there are all kind of just jumping into um, every industry they can kind of put their, put their hand into. And down on wall street, the, uh, the securities, the, the trading of stocks clearly becomes a way that you can 
gain control of companies, which was the, the initial sort of appeal of it. You know, you could, now you could buy stock in a little ferry boat company rather than have to, I don't know, uh, swashbuckle your way on and, you know, buy enough boats and build your little empire. You could now, uh, not, not just buy your rival, but buy stock in your rival and gradually become a controlling interest. So these are other rich people diverse. These are already rich people diversifying. It's not, it's not like normal. It's not like school teachers and clerks are like, I've got a little spare change. Let me go hang out at the coffee house. Well, no, it really is that it's much more, um, it's much more a hard scrabble kind of situation, but in, in the development of stocks, I mean, it's we see it with the IPOs now. I mean, it, you, you, if you need an infusion of cash, you sell stock in your company. And, uh, so even if you're like a small scale operation, you, you're quote unquote going public as a way to raise money, but then you also become vulnerable to people who are, who are trading stock in order to not just make money, but also like control operations. So a small group of people are kind of figuring out how to weaponize it a bit, just like today. That's right. And there are rules within the stock exchange. They, uh, that group of 25, uh, original traders signed a, an agreement called the buttonwood agreement that kind of, you know, uh, regulated their transactions, but a lot of the rules that we think of that govern the stock exchange, well, we see this push and pull in government now that the regulation and deregulation of how stocks are traded, what banks are allowed to do. It's still very contentious. It's part of the whole question of what is capitalism, how much of it is controlled by, by, uh, unscrupulous interest and, and, uh, and massive corporations and how much of it is, the free flow of money to small business people and, you know, and how much of it is necessary for ingenuity and how much of it is just rapacious, uh, consolidation of wealth. And it turns out it's all rapacious consolidation. (laughs) We have a winner, (laughs) but in the, you know, in the, in the nascency of it in the, in the early 19th century, a lot of the rules that we think of governing the process didn't exist yet. And a lot of the notions of how to defraud, weren't yet uh people hadn't thought i mean a lot of i was thinking about how there's so many new um just kind of bureaucratic obstacles around things that are a result of people coming up with new ideas for crimes right like until like until i think i've said this before but until like five years ago i think you could just stop a mail stop somebody's postal mail by giving an address send send a letter in say stop the mail just do it online you don't even have to um you don't have to like have any, like now you need an account as of a few years ago, you need to have an account so they can be sure you're actually stopping your mail and not just pranking a neighbor. Right. <laughs> but like until the first person thought, Hey, I could just shut off John Roderick's mail. There was no need for that whole rigmarole. You right. know, all these kind of simple processes got complicated by all the people discovering ways to be evil about them. For years, you could sign up your friend for a, uh, you know, a one cent record company <laughs> promotion and all of a sudden they get, or, you know, just, yeah, right. You, you, uh, you dox people by sending them. A I, bunch I'm of reading pizzas. the first Ripley book and it's just amazing what this guy can do. You know, he just, um, uh, you know, he can go to the American express office and be like, 
hold these bags for me. My name is, and just give some fake name, and they'll be like, yes, sir, Mr. Fanshawe. He can go to Italian cops in two different cities, and he tells one group of cops he's Tom Ripley, and he tells the other group of cops he's D- Jude Law, and nobody can do anything because they can't share information. There's right. no centralized... Yeah, crime used to be pretty easy, especially yeah. when the stock market is a coffee house and it's got a espresso machine instead of a bell. Well, we haven't we haven't actually specifically covered this in Omnibus, but we've kind of tangentially talked about the rise of Ponzi schemes and you know and pyramid schemes. Like that, that was a, a fairly Somebody new technology. Had to think of it. Yeah, right. It's thought technology. So enter into the story a man by the name of Daniel Drew, who was uh, you know not a, none of these people were born into wealth and. Um, they're all just sort of these hard, hard scrabble or, or barely middle-class people who are in, I guess you would say, the right place at the right time. Daniel Drew kind of came up as a cattle drower and, uh, and used that as his entree into, um, into New York. And, you know, cattle connected to shipping connected to stocks it was all it was all a this, big imagine these people realizing wait this is all one thing yeah yeah yeah, yeah right they just they, they were inventing this and drew Verticals. um you know drew arrived uh in new york and kind of through his association with cattle got uh got um became the proprietor of the Bull's Head Tavern which was right down there in the Wall Street area and through his kind of uh proprietorship of the tavern where all the kind of business and all of the shipping types and the longshoremen types were all uh, congregating there he also got an interest in a ferry boat and through that became uh the proprietor of, of a whole little fleet of ferry boats. Mm-hmm. He was in competition with Vanderbilt on the rivers as, uh, you know, the kind of two competing ferry lines. And then he got into, in, in 18, uh, 1840s, he got into the trading of stocks down in, the, when stocks were being traded in the neighboring coffee shop. And as part of his little stock enterprise, he became, um, a, a wealthy man, just sort of, you know, loaning money, uh, and, and doing, uh, what we would consider kind of unscrupulous, but at the time, what was considered maybe sporting, um, you know, minor sort of attempts to corner, certain markets, uh, to short certain markets. I mean, all these were new technologies and there weren't clear rules about, uh, the, the, the buttonwood agreement did not specify that, that these were uh, unscrupulous or illegal practices. We're now talking also about the rise of the railroads. Um, the Erie canal was completed in 1825, but really, for the next 20, 30 years, the Erie Canal was the main way, the main, uh, you know, shipping channel, but the railroads were ascendant and all of these New York shipping characters, these, these, uh, ferry boat owners started to buy stock in these 
small railroads and try to, because it would be part of their supply chain, part of, you know, railroads would, would bring goods that then would employ their ships. I think a Vanderbilt's a railroad guy. Did these guys right. get out of shipping or did just railroads become, because railroads were being built faster than anything else, that's where all the money went? Well, railroads, I mean, railroads eventually made the Erie Canal uh, not not irrelevant, I mean, but they com became strong competition with the Erie Canal, but railroads involved a lot of um, capital expense to expand. And so the Erie Railroad was one of the, you know, one of these new railroads that was being built initially to initially to upstate New York and kind of the, it was the construction of the railroad that brought the initial settlement to Southern New York, all that kind of Elmira era. Uh, it brought people there and, and then collected the, the fruit. And this is the, this is the part of New York that became the site of so many religious revivals. This was, you know, this is where Mormonism evolved right out of this, not from trains, not well, but the, but the people, you know, that was but why there this, wouldn't have been people there. Yeah. That's why this area was populated. And we, we've talked about how many different religious sects are initially kind of based there in Southern New York. Yeah. We started a podcast just to talk about all the weird sex cults of, <laughs> of, of the area. And now Southern we're getting to the bottom of it. It was the Erie Railroad. The Erie Railroad was constructed with, you know, public money. The governor of New York thought that this was, uh, this was a real injection. Does it parallel the Erie Canal? Is it? No, no, no. It's, uh, it's south of it. Okay. And, um, and, you know, and, and, and built to compete with it, but also built with an eye to Chicago. You know, this is the Erie Canal necessarily only is able to collect what you can bring to the Great Lakes. But, you know, this is also an era when the great migrations are moving west and we're seeing the idea, you know, you have to, you, if you're growing stuff in southern Indiana, it's got to go all the way up to the Great Lakes or all the way down the Mississippi. Why not bring it to New York directly? It's faster, I assume, to do railroad versus canal. Is that the idea? Why the canal's got locks and stuff? Railroads a straight shot. Yeah, it's uh, the canal is circuitous, and and a train is faster than a barge. Yeah, uh, but also you can direct, you can direct, you can put take the train over the mountains. You know, but, uh, the closest okay. distance between two points is a straight line. I don't have to get scientific with you here. I'm gonna need to see a proof of that. Anyway, uh, the construction of the Erie Railroad was expensive and the, 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 the profitability of the railroad wasn't really that great compared to, you know, the canal is, is taking a lot of the, uh, a lot of the goods, you know, it's, it's stealing business from you. The, the Erie railroad was not profitable and eventually went into bankruptcy. Let's blow up the Erie canal. That's what they should have done. Blow up the Erie Canal. Yeah, why not? Yeah, that's the that's the name of my Ohio album. <laughs> Sufjan Stevens' Let's Blow Up the Erie Canal. Uh, so so Drew now as a as a stockbroker and a and a ferry boat uh, magnate puts a bunch of money into the failing Erie Railroad. Puts a you know it gives it a cash injection. He thinks a it's fusion. a good bet. He thinks it's a good bet. And he gets himself put on the board of directors of the Erie Railroad. And he 
he now, although he and Vanderbilt are, are uh, competitors, he joins forces with Vanderbilt and they, you know, together rescue the Erie. So he and J- Vanderbilt join forces. Uh, there's, there's a railroad being built into Harlem, the Harlem Railroad, which becomes the, and this is a Vanderbilt project, it becomes the only railroad that actually enters Manhattan. Because it's coming from the north, so you can right. just go across a creek, not across the Hudson or the East River. Right. They build that bridge, and then, uh, and, and initially the Harlem Railroad ran at street level. It was a, just steam trains just running down the middle of 4th Avenue. Well, imagine. I, I'd be surprised if I were in Harlem today and just saw a steam train coming You'd be like, whoa, street. although in, in, uh, in, uh, in Harlem, the train is still above grade. I like the elevated trains, yeah. Right, and then it kind of drops down into the ground, uh, into a trench that Vanderbilt built uh, that ends up at Grand Central Station, which Vanderbilt built. Vanderbilt built. Vanderbilt built. Um, And so Drew becomes the director of the Harlem Railroad, and he tries to take control of this operation by selling the stock short to devalue it in order to... um, you know, he's hoping to create a devaluation in the stock so that he can buy it up and take control of the railroad. But Vanderbilt kind of out uh, plays him and actually buys up all of the all of uh, Drew's stock shorts and has the money to to buy his to shorts. Force Drew out, and then the and and raise the price of the stock. And eventually, Drew really lost his shorts. Oh. If you will. Thank you. Um, and Vanderbilt kind of took control of the railroad. Now, enter into the story um, a couple of famous robber barons. And these are these are the men that became the robber barons of the 19th century, which is a term we use in America to describe these, uh, these great railroad constructing financiers and are they great were they that great well no as we'll see they were uh they were bullies and they were kind of thugs street fighters we see them now in their velvet top coats and think of them as fairly you know as part of this new york society that we they had mutton chops yeah it's so they e- must be good it's easy to imagine that when you when you look at the gilded age and the mansions in New York city to think of them as cultured men. Yeah. But, but uh, you know, a lot of them came from, you know, these circus backgrounds. I mean, Daniel, Daniel drew, they were all weightlifters. (laughs) Daniel drew worked in a zoo before he ended up uh, working in cattle. Um, and I think that at the time zoos were just full of cows though. That was the only animal that had been discovered. The zoo was the only cow. Or I'm sorry, the cow was the only you animal. You would just go in to the zoo. zoo and see different kinds of cows. Yeah. The there there were um the, these were just kind of carnival barkers who got into what became respectable institutions. Boy, Ken, I was thinking the other day that waiting months to hire the right person is just like trying to get a video to load on 3G. I deserve better. That's a timely reference, John. (laughs) There's a way you can upgrade your hiring speed, just, you know, like you could upgrade your device to get faster downloads. Right. I would upgrade your hiring speed by using Indeed's Instant Match. You know, I spend a lot of time just hoping my perfect candidate will find me, but 
I'm beginning to realize that Indeed's hiring tools could help me cut through the noise to hire faster and smarter. Yeah, Indeed Instant Match will immediately deliver quality candidates uh, whose resumes on Indeed will fit your job description. You know, 90% of employers get quality candidates from Indeed's resume database as soon as they sponsor a job post. And Talentness says that Indeed delivers four times more hires than all other job sites combined. Well, let us recommend that you join more than 3 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. If you are hiring... Get started right now with a $75 sponsored job credit at Indeed.com slash Omnibus to help you upgrade your post. Get a $75 credit. That's a $75 credit. Those are American dollars too, not Australian dollars. At Indeed.com slash Omnibus. Indeed.com slash Omnibus. Offer valid through September 30th. Terms and conditions apply. So I'll introduce you to two of the... uh, you know, the, I guess two of the other major robber barons of the time. Please introduce us. Uh, first, Jay Gould, who was also someone, um, uh, not, he didn't come from a hard scrabble background, but he was definitely uh, headed to a life. His father was a farmer. He was headed to a life as he, he rejected farming, but he was going to end up being a bookkeeper. He worked for a blacksmith. He, um, he worked as a tanner or not, but not as a tanner, but as a tanner, uh, as the bookkeeper and then owner of a tannery. Ran a tannery. Right. Through tanneries. No circus jobs. He was not a tightrope walker. He, he did not have a job in a circus, no. But he got into this, uh, this world of this kind of burgeoning world of New York finance and saw an opportunity also in the failure of the Erie Railroad to buy into uh, some some ownership of the railroad. And he and his longtime partner, a man named James Fisk. Oh, sexy. I, I'm glad he's a, he's a LGBT pioneer. Uh, that's right. His, uh, James Fisk's wife, who he apparently was quite in love with, um, was also a lesbian who allowed him to have many affairs because she had a longtime uh, oh, lesbian relationship. Wow. I, I assumed that, but, but Gould and Fisk are not um, romantic partners. They themselves are not romantic partners, and James Fisk's romantic inclinations come into the story in a minute. Mm. Um, but James Fisk was a circus uh, yeah. person. Lion tamer. Came from... Cow tamer at, he, back then. Came from Vermont. He His dad was a peddler. Uh, he, you know, he did some... He was a, a jobber at a circus. These guys are just little... Tom Ripley's in the right place at the right time, right? They see a con and they know how to run it. Yeah, he was a bad peddler, but he got a job as a salesman at a shoe store. He was a bad salesman. Uh, He's a bad, like, uh, one-on-one salesman with with clients, but he was sent to Washington, D.C. in the early part of the Civil War to sell, you know, larger lots of textiles to the government. And in the course of the Civil War... I mean, we would call him a profiteer, mm-hmm. but what, where he ended up making his fortune is he was kind of watching the siege of Petersburg, which was what led to Appomattox, or what led to the end of the war. And when he saw that the tide had turned against the Confederacy, he sent an agent to 
London. He's doing insider trading with the Civil War. He sent a, a trader to London to short all of the Confederate bonds. Wow. And when the Confederacy lost the war, he had just gotten his guy into the stock market early enough that he made a fortune on, yeah, right, the, the defeat of the Confederacy. He <laughs> just had insider trading, right. And so he then joined uh, the stockbroker gang in New York. Uh, he was actually hired by Drew to work at his stock brokerage in the, you know, in the immediate aftermath of the Civil War. And did he help bring about Drew's demise or did he just move on once? Well, they all kind of brought about each other's demise. Um, He ended up, Fisk ended up partnering often with Gould uh, in their kind of machinations around these railroads. You got to have alliances like a reality show. That's exactly right. So we saw Drew get bested by Vanderbilt in, um, in taking over the Harlem railroad. But, now we get to the the subject of the show, the Erie War, which in um, in eighteen sixty six, uh, this little group of of financiers trying to take over the Erie Railroad were really trying to. I mean, they were building railroad empires, but they were also trying to maneuver within the stock exchange world to make fortunes on the buying and selling of stocks and ruin each other. They're not, they're not friends socially. They're friends oh, socially. Oh, they hang out at parties? Well, I mean, it's New York society. There's not that many people that rich, I guess. Um, but they are, you know, they're also, uh, they're also, this, this is all like, it's all fair and love and war. Like it's, uh, tell Michael it was only business. Edith Wharton coined the word frenemy. To describe at this very time, yeah, probably. Yeah. Uh, so Drew and Fisk and Gould, in their capacity as kind of executives of the Erie Railroad, recognized that Vanderbilt was going to try and take over the railroad through stock purchase, as he had done, uh, as he had done with the Harlem Railroad. And so, and this is another kind of extremely unscrupulous practice that that eventually was you know, made out, outlawed. Once, once someone realized uh, it was bad. Yeah. So it, hey, this is a thing. Let's everybody let's had been working on a gentleman's agreement up until this time. This was kind of like the Trump administration where you said, now, wait a minute, wasn't this written down somewhere? No, it turns out not. Uh, the three of them kept issuing new stock in the Erie railroad. So Vanderbilt thinks he's cornering the market. He's buying all the Erie Railroad stocking he can get his hands on. But they're just watering it down. But they're watering it down with this, just adding all of this fake stock to the mix. This is how they got rid of that Brazilian kid in the Facebook movie. Go they, on. Well, oh, right, right. No, they I, were like... You, and, Andrew Garfield, they're like, good news, you own 20% of the company. But then his lawyer doesn't read it and it says, and we can issue all the stock we want, so your, your 20% will become 0.0001%. Yeah, that's exactly what happened. And Vanderbilt lost... Um, he lost seven million dollars in eighteen sixty six money, yeah, which was a lot of money. And eventually, uh, Vanderbilt got uh, Vanderbilt under threat of lawsuit got his money back from Gould, but he lost control of the Erie Railroad. Now these guys are also playing a lot of um, a lot of different games, and in eighteen sixty nine. Gould and Fisk try to corner the gold market. And 
they do so because they meet Abel Corbin, who had married President Grant's younger sister. And through their relationship to Grant. Didn't this guy come up in a previous anonymous? Maybe the onion trading one, or I can't remember. This 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 grant in law has been in omnibus before. Who knows why? I wish I who can I, win the contest and tell us when we have talked about this I, guy before. I wish I had that much recall that I could recall. I mean, you know, I'm putting together a picture of 19th century Robert Barons in my own mind just by doing omnibus. Yeah, uh, and it's a you know it's a, a many tangled thread. But what what Gould? So Grant is trying to stabilize the U.S. economy after the Civil War. There are so many outstanding debts. Um, The United States has a gold reserve. And in releasing gold into the economy, they can control inflation. I mean, Grant is trying to control inflation. He's trying to, uh, you know, support the dollar and pay the debts. And if he were to, you know, release all the gold at once— the price of gold would drop to nothing and the price of money would drop because money is tied to the price of gold. Yeah. So it's this, you know, it's this monetary policy of kind of trickling out gold fast enough that, uh, that, you know, money is available and money and debts are being paid, but slow but enough. devaluing the dollar. Right. And so during this period, uh, Gould and Fisk are trying to, again, you know, kind of corner the market by insider knowledge of when Grant is going to release gold and how much. And they convince him through Abel Corbin, they convince Grant that he's releasing gold too fast. It's going to devalue the dollar and it's going to kill the the working man. Why is Grant listening to his son-in-law? Why does Grant have a Jared Kushner? That's what I want to know. That's exactly what it is. And Grant, you know, as Grant's got a lot on his mind and he's, uh, he's drinking a lot and smoking a lot of cigars in addition. He's busy. But you know, the, this remains to this day. I mean, part of the, what makes the fed so insane and so crazy is they're trying to, they're trying to control inflation. They're trying to get money in circulation and, and promote growth and it all seems like a pseudoscience half the time. We're always, you know, politicians are taking credit for economic expansion. Other politicians are saying it began with policies that were that are 10 years old. Right. So Grant uh, reduces the rate that gold is being introduced into the market. And Gould and Fisk try to corner it. Grant realizes what they're doing. Ah, and this is like some wild, wild west episode where Grant is like, wait a second, I'm yeah. going to get these guys. And he foils them, although he does give Abel uh, Corbin a little bit of a heads up so that Corbin is able to sell his gold. But uh, but Grant then releases a bunch of gold. And actually, actually, it's a uh, it's good policy. It controls inflation. But it creates what's known as Black Friday uh, in 1869, where the price of gold plummeted. It's, oh, it's a, is this the first of these market crash days that get a name and a color? That's right. And it, and it, this Black Friday presages the, the panic of 1873, which is a major global economic collapse. Like five-year kind of Great Depression of the late 19th century. And in fact, it was known as the Great Depression. Oh, really? Yeah. Uh, until the one in 1929 took the name. Were they tempted to be like Great Depression II, like they did with World War I and yeah, World War II? Yeah, that's right. It was, it was the, the, war, the depression to end all depressions until the new— Great Depression. It was, I think this, the 1929 crash was 
the the original Great Depression of 1873 was far enough in in uh, our collective memory that the new one could be the Great Depression and no one would remember otherwise. All there, the old people who could have told them about the Eighth Panic of 1873 had died of malnutrition. Yeah, they were like, wait a minute, we called it the Great Depression. Too late, old man. But so that, you know, that stung uh, Fisk and Gould, but it didn't take the wind completely out of their sails. Um, they continued to... So they, they caused this? They caused a... They caused a market crash? Well, they began a, a you know, a process where, you know, in the, in 1869 Black Friday, there were runs on banks. I mean, it was... Back, no. then, back then, Black Friday was just running out to the general store after Thanksgiving to get a new, <laughs> to get a new butter churn or something. <laughs> it was not, it was, the cause, the cause of the panic of 1873, I mean, there, it's, it's a global panic and it's not, re, it's not the result of any one but just Factor. but this one market crash of 1869 wasn't it was a, was an example of this kind of shorting of markets and attempts to control markets in fact in 1870 uh Fisk and Gould actually betrayed Drew in manipulating the stock prices of you know and they had all been in um they'd all been in a uh, like f- fairly friendly competition with Vanderbilt throughout this time, and so they they manipulated the price of the Erie Railroad. This is actually, good that whole economies can rise and fall based on like infighting in a friend circle, you know, just like bitter middle aged men trying to screw each other. Yeah, and 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 this is this also like built the railroads. I mean, the, their competition with one another. Um, and in the case of Vanderbilt, is that true? Like the railroads were not money makers. It was just like I better do this or this or Cornelius will. They they eventually became money makers, right. and I think I think history, although Vanderbilt was um, was really in the mix, and you know, and often often made a fortune off of someone else's misfortune, often got taken to the cleaners. But Vanderbilt, in the end, was known, I think, as a great creator of of prosperity and industry in the United States, despite all of his, you know, he created, I mean, there must be some philanthropic side to Vanderbilt university and so on, right? Vanderbilt's, uh, Vanderbilt married after his wife died and his younger wife kind of, as we see, even in industrialists to this day, (laughs) his younger wife encouraged him to, to give his money away, or at least to be a, a a philanthropist and a, and a benefactor. Vanderbilt did a thing on his deathbed where he, uh, gave uh, he was worth what would be the equivalent of over two hundred mil or two hundred billion dollars in wow in uh, in nineteenth century monies, mm-hmm. uh, and he gave the vast majority of it to one son, cutting his, his the rest of his family members out. They sued, and uh, and you know won some kind of a pittance relative to the to the the Vanderbilt fortune. So, you know, you see a lot of Vanderbilts in the world today. Some of them are the Vanderbilts that got the money. Some of like them, Anderson Cooper, Anderson Cooper, you know, look at him. He looks like money is, uh, but Jay Gould stayed evil. Is that where you're going? Well, so Jay Gould was, yeah, super duper bad. Nobody liked him. Um, he was known in New York circles as like a bad operator. Uh, and Jay Gould gained control of the Erie Railroad, but at this point, enter into the story a Scotsman who presented himself 
at these uh, in these boardrooms as Lord Gordon Gordon. That's a lot of Gordons. It's two Gordons. That's well. That's like any any hockey pub in Vancouver. You'll have a couple of Gords. Yeah, Gord so, Gord Gord. Lord Gord Gord, <laughs> great Canadian uh, philanthropist. And Lord Gordon Gordon uh, arrives in the American Midwest, and he says he he's here on behalf of he has a he has a great estates in Scotland. And I'm here on behalf of my great estates <laughs> in Scotland. <laughs> and he says I've got all, I've got overpopulation on my estates, and I want to resettle all of my subjects here in the American Midwest. Wait, that's a thing? He could just send send villages of Scots to Ohio? Well, this is the story he's telling. And he says, on behalf of uh, of the uh, a, a group of... You're not doing the accent. No, I can't do a Scottish <laughs> accent no, very that's, well. That's true, you can't. It's a little terrible. I end up sounding like, like Paul Ringo McCartney. Yeah. <laughs> I'm like, oh, peace and love. Keep going north, keep going north. <laughs> Arr, arg. No, my Scottish accent and my Irish accents are terrible. It's not like I haven't spent time there. I just don't understand. I can't do uh, Australian or New Zealand either. Oh, I can't get enough power, Captain. <laughs> there no, you go. it's not even good. <laughs> But uh, he he's, uh, claims to represent a group of nobles who all have this, who want to buy a tremendous amount of, of peasants for sale. Well, if they want what they want is real estate. Yeah. They're going to buy great tracts of the American Midwest in order to, you know, to infuse these areas with European money. European royalty are coming to to you know big cash. Must be exciting injection, and they're gonna yeah they're gonna build all this. Infrastructure. They're going to. They're going to bring prosperity. European farmers to uh, the Midwest. And uh, Lord Gordon Gordon comes with all these letters of introduction from uh, you know from nobility in uh, in the UK, what we now call the UK. And he convinces Jay Gould that in bringing all of uh, this new settlement, he's going to make the Erie Railroad really pop, uh, really uh, prosperous because sure. not only is he bringing all this traffic, but also then once those farms are established, the reciprocal traffic on, the, on the railroad. they got to stuff back east. Yeah, this, and, he, and so in their negotiations, uh, Lord Gordon Gordon says, well, let's work, let's, let's form a partnership in order, in order for us to share in the equity of, of this prosperity you should issue me a million shares of stock in the Erie railroad. And that will, you know, then I'll be invested in the railroad and then you'll be invested in this corporation that I'm forming, bringing all this European money. And so Gould, um, gives Lord Gordon Gordon a million shares in the Erie railroad as, as an investment in his, you know, and Lord Gordon Gordon immediately takes that million shares to the New York stock exchange and sells them. Uh, because Lord Gordon Gordon is a complete fraud. He uh, is he not? Is he from Scotland? Even the historic record does not ever really reveal who Lord Gordon Gordon was. <laughs> There's a suggestion that he just uh, so he his first appearance on the scene back in England was he scammed a bunch of jewelers in London based with a similar kind of like, I'm here, I'm here representing the so-and-so. See, now that we know he's not really Scottish, your accent works fine. No, but I think he is. I think he's from, well, maybe he's from Manchester, think, which yeah, is the only one I can do <laughs> and I can't even do it. I can do all, I can do five different accents from London because I've watched so many documentaries, but I can't do 
any of these northern accents. So he is probably from the north or from Scotland. Scotland. But he's <laughs> But he's not he's not nobility. He's not nobility at all. He represents no and and so he's but he has discovered Gould calls him out. He's a I'm sorry. Yeah, Gould calls him out. He's rep, he's uh he's arrested and he uh bamboozles the magistrates. He claims he has all these letters he says, you know, this is proof of my bona fides. I'm imagining him checking like a bagpipe and a spore. Yeah, he's and got a, a little tamashanter. The, the police guy is like one kilt. And so all these letters, of, these promissory notes of the the money that he's bringing from his uh, his European connections, the letters are convincing enough that he's released on bail, <laughs> at which point he immediately fle- fle- uh, flees to Canada. And Canada, of course, still being part of the the British empire, they say, now, wait a minute, you know, we have to get to the bottom of this again. It's because of the transatlantic gap that, um, that information isn't traveling fast enough. Just like Tom Ripley scamming those poor Italian cops. Gould. Did actually, he actually get away with the money that he, uh, that he made off of the sale of the railroad shares? He got away with the money, but Gould and a group of, you know, Gould at this point is a, is a diamond stickpin financier and and captain of industry. He and a group of of uh, of basically hired thugs cross the border, capture Lord Gordon Gordon, <laughs> but are um, are stopped by the Mounties at the border. Yeah, and it becomes an international incident. Gould tries to take him across the border. The Mounties stop him, um, and the governor, uh, one of the governors in the Midwest. Uh, forms a militia. Uh, unfortunately, you know, fraud isn't enough for extradition. Lord Gordon Gordon sits across the border, kind of um, lording it over everyone, as it were. But eventually, word gets back. Or, this story appears in the newspaper in London, and the group of jewelers that he had defrauded sent uh, sent letters and sent sent uh, representatives to you know to uh, defrock or to to reveal to dekilt him to dekilt him at which point you know he throws a a big party in his hotel gives a, his guests a bunch of expensive gifts and then shoots himself oh yeah wow so lord gordon gordon uh that explains why we don't know much about him yeah it seems to me like lord gordon if he can escape across the border he could like get a fast horse and but you know he, the jig was up and he didn't want to continue with the with the plan. Maybe he had demons we don't know about. Almost certainly he did. Um, so Fisk in 1872 living in, uh, in New York city is in a, although still married in a passionate love affair with a showgirl, a Victorian showgirl, a beauty by the name of Josie Mansfield. And I think if you, you know, when you look at a picture of Josie Mansfield, you realize that tastes have changed over time. And, uh, you know, a Victorian beauty, she has a very voluptuous, uh, mane, but she was, she was, uh, you know, kind of, uh, she entertained a handful of industrialists, but Fisk actually kind of kept her as a, he, he paid for her apartment. It was a scandal at the time. And, you know, she was a kept woman. She really just kind of looks like a dowager. She just sort of a plain, what, what we would describe as, some, you know, somewhat plain. But, um, but 
considered a great, like a real sex pot in the 1870s. And she falls in love with a partner of Fisk's, a man by the name of Edward Stiles Stokes, which is a great, I mean, if you're going to have somebody jump down out of a, out of a box in a theater and, sh- and shoot a man, Edward Stiles Stokes is a, is a pretty good name for it. Is that it. what happened? Uh, Stokes and Fisk are in competing for the love of Josie Mansfield. Stokes shoots Fisk uh, in the lobby of the, of the Vanderbilt Hotel, let's be, say. It would be fatal to be shot in the lobby. <laughs> he, sh- he got shot directly in the lobby. Uh, the bullet, w- the bu- bullet lodged in the divan. No, uh, Fisk was killed at the age of Guess how old he was. Uh, mm, is it going to be weirdly young? Yes. 40. 36 years old. Wow. Um, Fisk, uh, once the, one of the wealthiest Americans, died at 36. So this is, what, this is what happens. You should not have an open marriage, even if your lesbian wife says it's okay. That's right. Uh, Gould, the kind of ultimate villain of our story, although he keeps his wealth, dies of tuberculosis at age 56. Making him the longest live man in America at that time. <laughs> and kind of a reviled man on the scene. Oh, is that right? Yeah, Even no, in his time, nobody's like... Nobody ever liked him. He was he's just... Like the, he's a Zuckerberg, basically. Yeah, he was a, he was a bad <laughs> dude. Not, not, no, one is a, no one is a fan. Um, Daniel Drew lives to an old age, but... Uh, and having been once, you know, one of America's richest men, uh, by the age of 82, has been rooked out of his entire fortune and dies sort of almost destitute living on, you know, sleeping on the couch at his son's. Wow. Um, and Daniel Drew, uh, later on was the subject of a biography by the name of a, uh, like a socialist writer by the name of Book White. And he wrote a biography of him purportedly based on the discovery of his diaries and so when he, when Daniel Drew was still a, a public enough figure to warrant a best-selling biography, this was 1910. So, um, and he died in the 1890s. So still, he was still a, a public figure. Mm-hmm. Uh, this book, purporting to be his diary, described all of his unscrupulous business practices and and acted as a kind of unmasking of the. Of the um, like mustache twirling in the first person, yeah, all of all of the unscrupulous business that created this era of the rapacious capitalist. And although the book was later debunked and and it was actually revealed to be, oh, a, it was like a forgery. There was yeah. no diary. No, no, no. It was a political screed <laughs> on the part of White, but he did such a good job of writing the book, and you know, and made added. It was it was a biography of him. Yeah, but the the purported glimpse inside of his mustache twirling wasn't real, but it, it remains, um, although discredited, it remains a source. The quotes from it continue to appear in kind of socialist denunciations of the era of that, you know, as proof positive that they were all, um, knowingly evil doers. Even the factually incorrect parts are used for that. Yeah, it's, it's specifically the factually incorrect parts are the ones that kind of they're they're the kind of quotes that you see at the bottom of somebody's um, somebody's post about you know how bad how bad the baddies are. Right. And really, it's only Vanderbilt that that survives all of this with his reputation intact. Um, although 
forced out of the Erie Railroad. And the Erie Railroad, you know, goes bankrupt uh, half a dozen more times and it ends up consolidated in the era of consolidation of railroads first into, you know, the Erie, Pennsylvania, and then the Erie, Lackawanny, and so forth and so on. And, and that's uh, why, that's why all those, uh, railroads have ampersands. Ampersands. It, every ampersand is a bankruptcy basically. And weirdly, one of the things that bankrupted the, the Erie later was that when they built it, they built it on the, on a much wider gauge. Uh. They didn't build it on standard gauge. Now referencing our, uh, railroad gauge episode. Change of gauge. They built, uh, they built it on a six foot gauge and, uh, in the process of, converting it because they ultimately, and, and really they had one of the earliest examples of a, uh, a railroad that could travel on two gauges. They built a system whereby they could, um, they could switch over to standard gauge there because they built their rolling stock with two different, with the ability to travel on two different gauges. Yeah. But in converting the entire railroad to standard gauge, you know, that was such a capital investment that it was the source of another bankruptcy. And the Erie railroad, you know, eventually made it all the way to in some form or another into the 1960s, the Union Pacific absorbed, it was all absorbed and you can still see some of the old tracks, uh, sidings that are still sitting there along its route, rusting in the, rusting in the, in the Midwest. There's a metaphor for all these, um, infighting robber barons. Yeah, I guess the, I guess the fact that Vanderbilt is, the one that remains, um, I mean, no hero to the socialists, surely, but, but, but build, build a university, build right? a university. That's right. Endow and, and, and endow a university and then have a, a great granddaughter who has some signature blue jeans that then produces a very handsome news anchor and your reputation is secured. Oh, I wish Jay Gold had thought of that. And that concludes The Erie War, entry 424.PR2822, certificate number 32641, in the omnibus. Uh, Futurelings, uh, John and I will not uh, be remembered through university's name for us, I can only assume. Um, But you will, of course, have... How can you possibly assume that? I just have no plans to endow university. I didn't know you did. The thing is, um, you are in the middle of your career, although we would be, I mean, by Robert Barron standards, we're already pretty old. I, I have not died of tuberculosis yet. But, uh, but I think, I think there's, there's going to come a time when your fortune is so large that Mindy says, look, you got to give some of this money away. You can't keep buying Lego figurines with it. I don't have Endowa University money. Although I guess neither uh, did Trump. Yet, no. Neither did Trump. Maybe I could have a, nowadays probably having your name in a university just makes you seem like a for-profit weirdo. It's kind of like keeping a record in print. It used to be that in order to fulfill a record contract, you had to keep a record in print, which meant huh. you had to keep manufacturing LPs and put them in stores. But now record labels, in order to keep a record in print, just have to have it up on Spotify. And there, no it's, cost. It's still it's still a thing in all the record contracts that the contract continues to be, uh, you know, in effect as long as the record's in print. But boy, the burden. It's a lot on, easier to keep a record in print. Now. It sure is. And and you could start, you know, Jennings University. All you need is a letterhead. You don't even need a letterhead. I don't even need students. No, you just need a, don't a, need a campus online portal. Or a professor. Yeah. yeah. Tu- tuition is $100 a quarter. And maybe a Patreon. 
the uh, so you will probably only know us by our trail of posts uh, at Omnibus Project. Uh, I'm at Ken Jennings. You can find John at John Roderick, uh, principally on his Patreon. Uh, you can email us at theomnibusproject at gmail.com or uh, find like-minded friends at the various Futurelings watering holes. Um, Reddit and Facebook, especially. Uh, probably a Discord of some kind, but it's related to one of your other shows, so I don't really know how to get there. Or mm. indeed, what Discord even is. Uh, you could... Uh, support the show in our era and by the way if the patreon's still up in any year you should check it out right now even after ken and i are dead yeah continue to support our patreon (laughs) it will go to john's various widows yeah Uh, well one of them and the other Uh the others will be cut out for some reason they have to they have to fight it out (laughs) well you know one of the things one of the the claims that vanderbilt's children made was that he Gave all the money to the one son because he was under the influence of spiritualists. Oh, which is not unlikely at the time. That's right. It was all the fashion. Everybody was under the influence of spiritualists. So the spiritualists were, somebody was knocking a shoe on an overturned box and saying that the that the the, the Native American ghosts were telling him to only give his money to one son. I was reading a, a speculation today that the, um, the origin of the rapping sounds in Victorian seances may have been just... Uh, is there a ghost here? It may have just been uh, mediums who were very good at um, cracking their toes. Yeah, the two sisters that that started the whole fad. <laughs> yeah. they had they had uh, they could crack their toe knuckles. Imagine how good you would have to be at cracking your toes to sound like um, Native American ghosts knocking on tables. Uh, we we need to save that uh, for an omnibus episode. Oh, okay. yeah. yeah, don't don't blow this on an outro. Come on, well the whole the whole the whole cracking knuckles thing that was the you that. You, that was the lead. <laughs> that was, the, or that was the great reveal. That was the turns out. Well, I don't remember what show Abel Corbin was in, so we just have to wait a few more months till we've all forgotten this. Yeah, and then we'll do a show about toe cracking. Well, except that mediums. It's, if people are listening to this show in alphabetical order, there's as good a chance as any that they're right next to each other. Well, Erie War is early in the alphabet, so right, right. And I don't so remember the names of the, of the. If there's two of them, are they media? If they're sisters. Hmm. I don't, I don't actually know. That's one for one of our grammar I episodes. Assume We're really referencing our own catalog today. It's because the catalog's getting so voluminous. This yeah. is this is where we wanted to be. Yeah. This is the dream come true. As you once said, eventually we will do everything. If you want us to get to that point of being able to do everything, uh, Omnibus must continue. And for that, we need your support. You can go to patreon.com slash Omnibus Project to see really all the cool things you get. We've made it, we've made it well worth your while. No, it's hot. We're about to record an addenda show right now after we do this. That's going to be, uh, I mean, you would have heard it two and a half months ago because it was the July addenda show. I'm looking at a very large stack of mail that you seem to have over there. And the mail. Well, there's, there's a large stack, but it's only one box. Oh. This was the, uh, you had a correspondent tell you that the uh, object she tried to send you was sent back. And, you know, Mindy and I check this mailbox once a week, and I don't think we missed a week, which means I'm going to blame the... This does have a uh, re- re- receipt refused return to sender sticker on it, but I'm going to blame... I'm going to blame Louis DeJoy and the U.S. Postal Service. Because, yeah, I think you should blame the man. Because we uh, maybe we just didn't get the little slip that tells you... Ooh, blame the Army Corps of Engineers. Do you want to read your, your, your letter here? Oh, nice toss. I know that you, you went through a long phase where you were like, stop having people send your mail to my P.O. box, but it seems like you've you've surrendered... This is for, well, they run the risk of having it sent back because the 
post office is not reliable. This is from Beth, right? It is a card uh, from Miss QP Urkheimer. Oh, but of sorry, course, QP. Well, it's an it's an Edward Gorey illustration. Oh. And then the card says, John, sorry it took so long. Signed, Beth. Uh, it being a beautiful quilt with an owl theme. Oh, wow. Look at, look at that. Oh, my goodness. Look it's, at those owls. Oh, my gosh. This thing weighs. Is this like a weighted blanket for yeah, your, it's a, for it's your a, anxiety? It's a thunder blanket. But I can't even lift it. Is it really? A, is it's, it really heavy? It's causing anxiety in me. Oh, my goodness. Look at it. It's uh, The fabric is incredible. I can't get the owls upright. Come on. The owls are not on. what they seem. Can stand up. There we go. Get up there and hold that thing. Wow. Wow. It's enormous. And heavy. It's enormous, just like me. And uh, heavy, just like me. Do you want to put it on right now? Let me see it. Oh, and then the other side is a proper quilt. Look at that. Yeah. Uh, I'm sure it has a name. This is the, uh, the Log Cabin or the Stars and Stripes or the um, Amish wow. Uh, Mustache. Wow. Holy moly. That's a, she, that's a really great quilt. It is, and it's enormous. Yeah, I think part of the reason for the weight is that it's just a huge quilt. It's massive, but it's also... Oh, that's going to be very warm. Well, it, thank you to the Edward Gore character. Yeah, thank you, Beth. How fantastic. I've, I, she alerted me to, that it was coming, and I've been waiting with bated breath, but there it is. And we apologize for the post office-related shenanigans that led it to... You would have to send it twice, because no one deserves that. Yeah, where do you even get that fabric? All right. Future links from our vantage point in your distant past, we have no idea how long our civilization survived. We hope and pray that the catastrophe we fear may never come. But if the worst comes soon, this recording, like all our recordings, may have been our final word. But if providence allows, we hope to be back with you soon for another entry in the office.